Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver, the OG Rob Silver. And today we will be talking about Tim Zhu's huge win over Tony Harrison, another Q&A session, and I will give my review of Creed Three. That came out last Friday and did record numbers and I will talk all about the movie, my thoughts on the movie and where I think the Rocky franchise should and could go from here on out. But first and foremost, before I begin the podcast, once again, I want to recommend everybody out there that if you are a huge fan of boxing history, and I know that my listenership Majority-wise, 80% of my listenership are hardcore boxing fans. Well, being a hardcore boxing fan, you are a student of the sport. And there is no other man on this planet that can do the career of Muhammad Ali, the most influential and famous athlete that ever lived in the entire world. No one can do his career justice better than the OG Rob Silver. And for an additional $5 per month, you could click on the Patreon link. It's in the description of this podcast. And you will, for the next nine months, once a month, hear my Life and Times of Muhammad Ali series. I've already recorded two shows. One is up already on the Patreon page. That is Muhammad Ali's first round knockout of Sonny Liston, May 25th, 1965. The Phantom Punch fight. Um, I recorded my second part of the life and times of Muhammad Ali, his November victory over Floyd Patterson. Now, it's a 10-part series, and it is me recapping the 10 biggest fights of Ali's career. I do play-by-play of each fight as we watch along. I, I will send you the YouTube link, and kudos to my buddy Martin from, from the UK. His website, Vintage Boxing, is the, webs, is the YouTube page that I use, and it's tremendous footage. In my opinion, the best boxing channel on YouTube in terms of fight footage, and I re I uh, I talk about what go what was going on in the world at the time, according to what my father told me throughout my lifetime. My father died 23 years ago, but my father, when he was teaching me about the sport of boxing from when I was a little boy, and then. Up until when I was 32, he was 52 when he passed in 2000. He would always tell me stories of what was going on in the world during the 1960s when Muhammad Ali was on top. And up until the point where he retired in 1979, the first time I had started watching boxing in 77, my father kept spitting out these facts and figures of Muhammad Ali's career. And so I take what my father told me and um, what I've learned through history, and I re- recap what was going on in the world during each of these ten 
fights that I cover on the life and times of Muhammad Ali. Also available on the Patreon page. Later on today, you're going to hear my review of Creed 3. Well, you'll have a rundown of the first eight Rocky movies, the six Rocky movies, and the first two Creed movies. An episode on each movie in which historical data, historical facts, and a recap of each movie is done by Garrett Gonzalez and Duan. Uh, two members of the Fight Game Media Network um, podcast group, podcast staff. Uh, tremendous. You will not hear better rundowns of each movie than Garrett and Duan's rundown. And also, Garrett and I did a complete recap, four episodes worth, of the controversial Hulu series from last fall, the Mike Tyson uh, series. We break down each episode and we talk about what's historical fact versus what the show showed that was fiction. And also, one last thing, when we were just talking about boxing on the Patreon, last year I did a 10-part series on the 10 greatest upsets in boxing history. You'll, you'll hear my 10 greatest upsets. I break down each upset, what was going on at the time in the world of boxing, and what led to the upset, and what happened to each fighter after the upset. My 10 greatest upsets in boxing history, all available on the Patreon feed of the Fight Game Media Network. Now on to Saturday night's win by Tim Zhu over Tony Harrison. Um, This wasn't an easy fight for Tim Zhu, despite what Al Bernstein and the— Well, I don't think Al Bernstein was there, was he? Um, My bad. I apologize to Al. Uh. They were they were broadcasting from the Showtime studios as the fight happened in, in Australia. And it was Brian Custer, Jamel Charlo, Abner Mares, and uh what's my and Steve Farhood. There was no Al Bernstein. There was no and thank God there was no Marlon Ronaldo. Uh, kudos to Brian Custer. He did a tremendous job. But despite Custer and and uh Maris claims that uh Zoo was dominating the fight, I I didn't see Zoo dominating the fight. First round I gave to Tony Harrison and I thought through the first four rounds it was even. Zoo was walking down Harrison. Um I wish he would have went to the body more, but he was landing the harder punches. Tony Harrison didn't throw a lot of power punches, and every time he did, he'd get caught. And it was the the third round when um Harrison first got hurt by a a big right hand by uh Tim Zhu, and Tim Zhu Tim Zhu broke him down, walked him down, walked him down, and finally in the ninth round landed several. Booming uppercuts, right uppercuts. Tony Harrison was out on his feet. Tony Harrison was draped over the ropes. The referee should have stopped the fight right then and there. Harrison goes down. He gets up at the count of nine, and wisely the referee stops the fight. Even though I think Harrison could have continued, there was no way in the world he was beating Zoo up until that, after that barrage of shots he took from the son of the all-time great junior welterweight, Costa Zoo. Kudos to T Tim Zoo, the biggest win of his career. Finally, a win over a former world champion. A uh, Tony Harrison has fought damn near every 154-pounder. And now, in my opinion, Tony Harrison needs to do what Jared Hutt needs to do. Both Hutt and Harrison need to retire. Uh, Tony Harrison's had a very good career. He's a former world champion. He has ducked nobody. He fought Tim Zhu at a time when, and kudos to Tim, Tim Zhu. Tim Zhu didn't have to take this fight with Tony Harrison. He did. And he conquered Tony Harrison. And so now Tim Zhu gets to fight Jamel Charlo for the undisputed junior middleweight championship of the world. Tony Harrison needs to retire and just stick to doing the great job he's doing in Detroit with the Super Bad Gym. He's got Alicia Baumgartner as one as as one of his fighters who's who's one of the hottest female boxers on the planet, an undisputed world champion. Build that program in Detroit. Build that gym. Continue to make Detroit the uh the home of champions.
I've said this over and over again. No state in the entire United States has developed more all-time great fighters than the state of Michigan. The list is endless, and now Tony Harrison can continue that tradition of training all-time great Michigan fighters. He can take the mantle from his former mentor, Emmanuel Stewart, and take Detroit boxing into the new generation. We will see. We will see. As far as Tim Zhu goes, he still has a lot to work on. Offensively, he's a tremendous fighter. Um, Defensively, he couldn't stop Harrison's jab. Whenever Harrison threw a right hand, he landed. Harrison just didn't throw a lot of uh, power shots because he was worried about getting counted. Zoo's defense has a lot to be worked on. It's not desirable at all. You cannot continue to walk down your opponent and just um, rely on your power. He could get away with that with a Tony Harrison who's past his prime. He can get away with that with a Terrell Gosho, even though Gosho didn't knock him down in the first round. Zoo got back up and dominated. But against a Charlo, even against a Sebastian Fundora, that walking down and and no regard for his defense is not going to work. It's not going to work. His trainers need to work on his defense because his next fight looks like it's going to be against Charlo. Charlo already said he was going to fight the winner, and Charlo was in the studio. For him to have a shot against Jamel Charlo, he's got to work on his defense, period. I saw no head movement last night from Tim Zhu. Not taking away from his win. It was a huge win, a great win, but he needs to work on his defense, Please, and he needs to go to the body more often. He did land some hellacious body shots last night, but I think had he gone to the body earlier, it would have been an uh, earlier knockout. He would have won fifth or sixth round instead of the ninth round. Anyway, let me not uh, be too negative on Tim Zhu. Tim Zhu, unlike other second-generation boxers like that bum Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., has skills. He has skills. He's got tremendous punching power. Um, Stamina-wise, he was as fresh in the ninth round as he was in the first round. My only worry, my only concern is his defense. And, by the way, his father was not a great defensive fighter. I see a lot of Costa in Tim. Now, on to the question and answer session. Let me roll it up. Let me get it. Uh, For those who want me to answer their questions on the podcast, go to Twitter and type in Ask Rob Silva. Ask Rob Silva, A-S-K-R-O-B, hashtag Ask Rob Silva, my bad. And I will answer your questions. And it it doesn't have to be boxing. It could be about life, politics, music, other sports. All right, on to the questions. Here we go. From Mark, Mark Story McAhill. And Mark Story McAhill asks, who is the best all-around athlete you've seen in your lifetime from New York City? Adding on to that, who's the best basketball player from the South Bronx? Thanks. The best all-around athlete that ever came out of the state of New York, in my opinion, is the Harlem legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Period. Now, you've had a lot of great athletes that came from New York. Devon White, great center fielder for the Toronto Blue Jays, not in the Hall of Fame. One of the greatest center, defensive center fielders I've ever seen, but not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, another great all-around athlete, of course, was the great Lou Gehrig. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dominated basketball, won six MVPs, lost one game at college. Won three NCAA championships in college and won, let me make sure I get this correct, six NBA championships with the Milwaukee Bucks and L.A. Lakers combined. 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the greatest all-around athlete ever to come out of New York City. The greatest basketball player I've ever seen to come out of the South Bronx is a brother that's only two years older than me. I was born in 68. This young, uh, this brother was born in 1966. And that is the great Rod Strickland. I remember as a teenager, my father telling me how the next great point guard lives just a few blocks away from us. I grew up in the Millbrook Projects of the South Bronx. When you walk alongside East 138th Street from Alexander Avenue to the Bruckner Boulevard, 138th Street Strip, you are walking past three projects, three massive housing projects. The Patterson Projects, which was where Iran Barkley, former three-time world champion, is from. Then a few blocks down, you have the Mitchell Projects, which Rod Strickland grew up. And then a few more blocks past that on 138th Street, you have the... Well, actually, we're not, my housing project wasn't located on 138th Street like the other two. It would be further down. It would be more like between 135th and 136th, 137th. And that's the Millbrook Projects, where I grew up at. And so uh, Rod Strickland from the Mitchell Houses in the South Bronx, the greatest player, basketball player I ever seen come out of the South Bronx. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, next question. Here we go. And the next question is from LL School K. He asked, did boxing create Jake Paul? I mean, we've had circus acts in the past, but they never got that exposure. He's getting, the exposure he's getting is the boxing world the fault for this? No, it's not the boxing world completely. It's not completely their fault. Jake Paul took advantage of his YouTube notor- notoriety. He, like my 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 uh, beloved son who passed away a year ago at the age of twenty nine, my nephew who will be eighteen in August, they both were huge fans of Jake Paul's YouTube page. So, uh, what you call him a, a YouTube celebrity? So Jake Paul and his brother Logan Paul, both YouTube celebrities. They began to fight exhibitions. And so their fan base started backing them. And they took advantage of this fan base. And I believe both have millions of followers on YouTube, especially young people ranging from all ethnic and um, ethnic backgrounds. And... They took advantage, and um, I give Jake and Logan credit. They were able to turn that into money boxing this, these exhibitions. I have no problem with these guys boxing exhibitions. What I have a problem is, is with these guys thinking that they're real boxers, and then they start having pay-per-view fights and so forth in clown shows. The, the the fight he had against Nate Robinson, Jake Paul, that's listed as a as a win on his record. How Nate Robinson didn't even spar for that fight. That should just be an exhibition. And now the media began to say, "Oh, this is great for boxing," and they started hyping this guy as you know a a, a possible face of boxing. What are you talking about? 
It's the boxing media's fault, not the boxing world. The boxing media's fault, right? And and I don't I don't uh, blame the Paul brothers for uh, taking advantage of these morons in the media. They capitalize it. We we live in America, a capitalist society. You make that money. But after Logan, um, after Jake Paul's second fight with uh, Tyron Woodley that flopped at the box office. And then when he fought, when he was going to fight Hasim Rockman in the garden, that fight was canceled. Now they claim it was due to Hasim Rockman Jr. not wanting to live up to the terms of the contract and far, as far as the weight he was supposed to come in at. That's bullshit. Half the garden was empty. They were going to take a bath on that fight. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what the price is, but it's anywhere from $500,000 to a million dollars to rent Madison Square Garden for one night. They would have they would have took a bloodbath because you have to pay the fighters, you have to pay security, you have to pay all these people and in a 20,000 seat arena, if you only sold 9, 10,000 seats and you already have to pay half a million to a million beforehand and then you have to pay everybody else, you're losing money and the pay-per-view wasn't going to do any numbers, so that was scrapped, all right? His fight with Anderson Silva, that was, I believe, a pay-per-view success because Anderson Silva is one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time, and you had the UFC fan base pay money to see that. I don't know what numbers his fight with Tommy Fury did. I doubt if it did any numbers. I doubt it. The live gate was great because Tommy Fury has that Fury name out in England. But as far as him being a gate attraction in America... Being a pay-per-view uh, uh, an attraction, those days are over now that he was exposed by the bomb, by the bum, Tommy Fury. And you know what? That's all I'm going to say about this uh, circus act, Jake Paul. All right, next question. Uh, another question from LL School K. He's got a couple of more. What's your favorite Ali fight? Mine's is Ali versus Truvalo 2. LL, if you haven't done already, I would click on to the Patreon link in the description of the podcast and check out my Life and Times of Muhammad Ali because eventually I will get to my all-time favorite Ali fight in that series. My all-time Ali favorite fight was his third fight versus Joe Frazier. That, in my opinion, is the greatest fight that ever lived, that was ever done, that was ever participated in by two legendary fighters just the greatest fight of all time in my opinion was the thrill in manila that's my favorite ali fight and ll i strongly urge you if you haven't done already to subscribe to the patreon page and you will more than love my coverage of muhammad ali's entire career okay another question from ll he asked who's a fighter that you would recommend beginners watch for me, I'd say Winky Wright or Alexander Usyk. Who is a fighter I'd recommend people to watch? Well, well, those who are young fans that listen to this podcast, one guy I would recommend you guys to watch is Alexis Arguello. Alexis Arguello was always tall for his weight class, whether it was featherweight, junior lightweight, lightweight, and even junior welterweight. He was five foot ten, which is tall for all those divisions. And Alexis Arguello fought tall. Behind a jackhammer left jab, and he didn't waste punches. He threw punches in combinations. Everything was off that jab, and he was one of the hardest punches in the history of boxing with one of the top five greatest right crosses of all time. His left hook was phenomenal. In the, in the history of great offensive fighters, he's right up there with a Thomas Hearns, a, a Nioa Inoue, a... Tito Trinidad for having every punch in the book jab uppercut hooks body punches period I would recommend young fans to watch footage in most of his fights at least 30 of his fights are on YouTube check out how he throws his punches he throws his punches like they wrote them in the textbook his right cross down the pipe is thrown with his entire body behind that right hand. His jab is fluid and 
he doesn't pour with it. He shoots it out. It connects. His hooks to the body, ferocious. His left hook, especially his short left hook, accurate. And once again, his entire frame. And I've said this many a times. If you notice, the biggest punches in boxing history normally are tall, skinny fighters, whether it's Alexis Arguello, Thomas Hearns, Bob Foster, Deontay Wilder. Now, you know, you have the big guys like a George Foreman and a Mike Tyson, but that's not the norm. The norm are tall, skinny fighters, Tito Trinidad. Tall, skinny fighters who, for some reason, put all their leverage behind their punches, I guess because they're punching down on their opponent, and they come down with the most power, and Arguello is a prime example of that. All right, on to the next question. And the next question is from Divided We Fall on Twitter. He gave me the listing of the Ring Magazine Top 10 in 1991. And I told him I'd compare it to the Ring Magazine. Let me get that right now. Ring Magazine. Let me get that. Ring Magazine. Let me type this in. Ring Magazine. I had the list, but I lost it. So I'm going to do Ring Magazine, heavyweight heavyweight rankings from 1972. Okay, I got this up. All right, let me open that up. All right, let me widen this up. Okay, now, divided we fall, I'm going to list the top 10 that he posted on Twitter. And I will compare it to almost 20 years earlier. First, 1991. In 1991, the Ring Magazine top 10 heavyweights. Evander Holyfield, who was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world at the time. Mike Tyson. This was right before he went to prison. He was the number one contender. Riddick Bowe was the number two contender. Razor Ruddick was the number three contender, coming off two losses to Mike Tyson. Ray Mercer who was about to lose to Larry Holmes, a comeback in Larry Holmes. George Foreman, who was, a miss, who was in the midst of a comeback and had just lost to Evander Holyfield earlier that year. Tim Witherspoon, former two-time heavyweight champion of the world. Tony Tucker, former heavyweight champion of the world. Lennox Lewis, this was uh, up-and-coming Lennox Lewis. He hadn't yet... He hadn't yet developed into the complete fighter he'd become. And Michael Moore. Now, of these top 10, Holyfield was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Mike Tyson, former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Riddick Bowe, future undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Razor Ruddick, never won a championship. Ray Mercer had held the bogus WBO heavyweight championship of the world at this time. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the WBO title didn't mean shit back then. It was <coughs> it was even more worthless back then than it is now. In my opinion, all the sanctioned body titles are, are worthless. But back in 1991, the WBO title had no relevancy at all. So I never considered Ray Mercer a former heavyweight champion of the world, even though he did himself. George Foreman, former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world and would be the oldest heavyweight champion of the world when he went, won it again four, uh, three years later. Tim Witherspoon, former two-time heavyweight champion of the world. Then Tony Tucker, former heavyweight champion of the world. Lennox Lewis, future undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And Michael Mora, future heavyweight champion of the world. So of these 10 fighters, only two had never been a world champion. I'm not counting Ray Mercer's W.B. August reign. And Razor Ruddick never was a world champion. So 8 out of 10, and what a stacked division. And how many Hall of Famers you have? You Holyfield, Tyson, Bo, Foreman, Lennox Lewis. You have four Hall of Famers. Once again, Holyfield is in the Hall of Fame. He was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Mike Tyson is in the Hall of Fame. He was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Riddick Bowe in the Hall of Fame. He was the first ballot Hall of Famer. George Foreman, they had to wait a while, but he was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, 
and Lennox Lewis. You got one, two, three, four, five. My bad. Holyfield, Tyson, Bo, Foreman, and Lewis. Five of the of these ten fighters are in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Now let me go to the nineteen seventy two list. The undisputed heavyweight champion of the world was Joe Frazier. Number one contender, Muhammad Ali. Number two, George Foreman. Number three, Jimmy Ellis. Number four, Ron Lyle. Number five, Floyd Patterson. Number six, Ernie Terrell. Number seven, Jose Roman. Number eight, Joe Bugner. Number nine, Ken Norton. I'm not going to count number 10 because we're just going 10 against 10. Of this list, Joe Frazier. Former, it was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Muhammad Ali was the former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. George Foreman, future undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Jimmy Ellis, former heavyweight champion of the world. Ron Lyle will be a contender for several years, never champion. Floyd Patterson, two-time undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Ernie Terrell, former WBA heavyweight champion of the world. Jose Roman, uh, never that good. Joe Bugner was always a tough out for any fighter he fought. Ken Norton, future WBC champion of the world. So, of these 10 fighters, you've got Frazier 1, Ali 2, Foreman 3, Ellis 4, Patterson, Ernie Terrell, Ken Norton. You have seven future or former or current heavyweight champions. The 1991 list had eight future or former or current Heavyweight champions. Hall of Famers. Frazier, first ballot. Ali, first ballot. Foreman, first ballot. Floyd Patterson, first ballot. Ken Norton. So, just like the 1991 list, you've got five heavyweight champions. And the one common denominator is George Foreman. I'm going to give the edge to the 91 class. I mean, to the, I'm sorry, to the 1972 class because of the common denominator. George Foreman in 1972 was a greater fighter than the George Foreman of 1991. But, I mean, it could go either way. Flip a coin. The two greatest Errors in the history of the heavyweight division were the 1970s and 1990s, and these two lists prove that fact. One last question from LL School K. LL School K asks, asks, I've heard you say unnecessary movement in the ring before. Can you unpack what you mean? Okay. My father taught me this when I first started watching boxing in 1977. He used to hate fighters that had unnecessary movement in the ring. And the prime example of that was Hector Camacho. After Hector Camacho lost to Edwin Rosario, I mean, not lost. He beat Edwin Rosario. A lot of people thought he lost. But when he beat Edwin Rosario in their incredible June 13th, 1986 fight in Madison Square Garden, in which my father took me for my... uh, High school graduation gift. After that fight, Camacho began became a runner, and he ran and ran and ran. Unnecessary movement. Unnecessary movement. He kept running and running and running. That's what I'm talking about a lot about unnecessary movement. A boxer that moves far too often, he doesn't have to. He's moving. He's not. He's not throwing any punches. He's not moving to get out of punches. He's moving to just stay out of harm's way. That's unnecessary movement. That's what I mean by unnecessary movement. And you see that with a lot of fighters that move far too much. Another example was Sean Bay Mitchell, 1990s former junior welterweight champion. He moved far too often. Far too often. You're not maximizing your ability to punch inside the ring. You are running so much, you are moving so much that you're not even close to hitting the fighter you're moving from. Perfect examples of boxers who didn't move a lot but were great on the outside. Their movement was only to defend against their opponent. But they could be right in front of you and make you miss Wilfred Benitez in his prime before he uh, was washed up at the age of 24. But Wilfred Benitez between the ages of 17 and 23 
he only moved to make you miss. Um, Floyd Mayweather and Pernell Whitaker. Winky Wright. Outside boxers that were great defensive fighters that didn't show unnecessary movement. When Whitaker moved out of the way, whether it was against Julio Cesar Chavez or Oscar De La Hoya, it was just to avoid a punch. Same thing with Floyd Mayweather. They didn't exhibit unnecessary movement. They moved when they had to. Muhammad Ali was another great example, and LL, I talk about Ali's movement in the second Floyd Patterson fight that's only available on the Patreon podcast feed. So, LL, great questions. Great questions from both LL, also from Divided We Fall, and of course, Mark. Now, on to my review of Creed Three. Ladies and gentlemen, I've kept this under my hat. I haven't spoken about this. This is the first time I'm speaking about my thoughts on this movie, and I fucking loved this movie. This was a tremendous movie. Uh, Creed Three set box office records opening week. It's the highest grossing opening weekend of a sports movie, of a boxing movie, in the history of cinema. Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan hit home runs in their portrayals. The fight scene when they actually when they had the big fight at the end between Jonathan Majors and Michael B. Jordan, between Adonis Creed and uh Damian, his opponent, um, was phenomenal. Especially the eleventh round when they put up the cage, they showed you the the no audience. They showed a cage as a way of just showing these two guys fighting each other, hitting each other with these incredible shots. The fight, the 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 fight scene, the the the, the boxing was the greatest boxing I've ever seen in any move movie. Greatest fight footage I've ever seen in any movie. Fight scenes, period. Boxing scenes, period. And it reminded me of what Muhammad Ali said after his Thriller Manila victory over Joe Frazier. He said that when he fought Frazier that night, it felt like it was just him and Frazier in the ring and nobody else, not even the referee. All he felt was him and Frazier trying to kill each other. And that's what round 11 of the fight footage of the fight scene between Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors reminded me of the thrill in Manila and the 12th and final round in which, and um, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the movie yet, cut this off right now. When Adonis Creed gets dropped early in the 12th round and he gets up and knocks out, Damian Jonathan Major's character to win and retain and to win back the heavyweight championship world because Dame Damian was going into the fight as a champion because earlier in the movie and I'll talk about that in, in, a, in a brief synopsis in, in a brief synopsis. Matter of fact, let me go back to the beginning of, of the movie in the plot. The plot was that. Damien is released out of prison after being in prison 17, 18 years for a crime that both he and Adonis Creed had committed when they were teenagers. At that point in time, Jonathan Major's character was the number one amateur in the world. He goes to prison and he doesn't snitch on Adonis Creed. And so when he comes out of prison, he goes and he um, finds Adonis and Adonis feels that uh, he owes Damien. And so he helps start training uh, uh, Damien. He brings Damien to the gym. And by the way, Wood Harris, phenomenal, phenomenal as the man who played Tony Burton's son. Tony Burton being the uh, trainer for Apollo Creed, Adonis, Adonis Creed's father, Wood Harris plays his son. And finally, the first two Creed movies, Wood, Har- Wood Harris's um, 
dialogue was limited. In Creed 3, he got more dialogue, and he, in my opinion, was the greatest trainer ever portrayed, the greatest boxing trainer ever portrayed in a in a motion picture. And I know people are going to say, well, what about Mickey? Mickey was a caricature. Bur Burgess Meredith was a, uh, a played a caricature of that old geezer trainer, right? It was a caricature. I knew. I, I, Wood Harris looked like the modern day trainer, a real trainer. He acts like a trainer. The way he gives instructions in between rounds, with the way he gives instructions during sparring when he's training a fighter. Wood Harris has that down pack, even greater than Sly Stallone had when he played Creed's train, uh, Adonis's trainer. Wood Harris, in my opinion, is the greatest actor ever to play a trainer. The greatest portrayal of a boxing trainer. And Wood Harris was phenomenal. And Wood Harris told Adonis Creed. Wood Harris's character, Adonis tra Creed's trainer told him, I don't think you could trust this guy. Felicia Rashad was phenomenal despite the fact that her character died. Mrs. Creed, Apollo Creed's widow. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, I had the biggest problem I had with the first two Creed movies, they finally addressed it in Creed 3. The first two Creed movies, they never once mentioned Apollo and Mrs. Creed's two children that you saw in the first two Rocky movies. They had children. Adonis Creed had siblings. They never mentioned it. It's as though they never existed in the first two movies. Well, in, in Creed 3, when Mrs. Creed and Adonis, when Adonis and his mother talk about what happened with Damien when he was a teenager and Damien going to jail and why he, uh, he was associated with, with, with Damien, he told his mother that Damien was more of a brother to him than the two, his two older siblings who, when Mrs. Creed took Adonis in, remember from the first uh, Creed movie, he was a ward of the state. And when Mrs. Creed found out that Apollo had an illegitimate child that was born outside their marriage, she stepped up and took Adonis in. And Adonis mentioned how when she took him in, how her other two kids hated it, treated him with disrespect, treated him as though he was a bastard stepchild. And so Damien was, was more of a brother to him, more of a sibling to him than his brother and sister who wished he never existed. Finally, those two siblings were addressed in Creed 3. Um, I wish they would have. I wish they would have had two actors appear. As his siblings. At a funeral service. At a memorial. For Mrs. Creed in the movie. But no it didn't happen. Maybe in the next Creed. They will make appearances. I would love to see an appearance. But at least. That callback was addressed. And finally. The one criticism I have about the Creed series has been put to rest. Felicia Rashad was phenomenal. When she passed away, ladies and gentlemen, when she had a stroke and Adonis and her had their final words and he was talking to her, it, man, it brought back memories of when my mother was hospitalized last fall and I was talking to her after she came out of a coma. And, man, it, it, it gave me goosebumps, but my mother survived. She's still alive. The way Mrs. Creed was talking to Adonis reminded me of the conversation my mother and I had after she came out of her coma. But my mother survived. Mrs. Creed died. And I, at first I thought, oh, she's going to survive because when she was talking to Adonis, it reminded me of a conversation I had with my mother when she came out of her coma. But then when she started acting as though she thought Adonis was Apollo, that's when I knew these were her final words, and that was a heartbreaking scene. 
Now back to the fight. Oh, before we get to the fight. So Michael B. Jordan's character, uh, Adonis Creed, has retired. And there was supposed to be a fight between Drago, Ivan Drago's son and uh, the number one Mexican, the number one contender for Mexico. Well, Ivan Drago's son is brutalized at the press conference. No, not at a press conference, at a gala, at a gala for Adonis Creed's wife, who's a, who's now a producer. She can't, she can no longer sing because her hearing is almost gone. He is jumped, and we find out from Mrs. Creed, who shows her a picture of the guy who attacked Ivan Drago with a bottle and put him in the hospital. Ivan Drago's son, and he suffers injuries and a concussion, and he's unable to fight the number one contender. And so Michael B. Jordan, Adonis Creed, says, I've got Damien, who's a former amateur Golden Gloves champion. He can be the replacement at the last minute, and then he knocks out the number one contender, and now he's the champ, heavyweight champion of the world. The night he wins the title, Felicia Rashad, Mrs. Creed, shows Adonis, all these letters that Damien had written to him that she held back from Adonis. And one of the pictures shows the dude who put Drago in the hospital. Adonis confronts Damien about it, and that's when the animosity animosity between the two begin. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, Adonis Creed appears on the Stephen A. Smith first take show. And this was a perfect cast in Stephen A. Smith, that piece of shit, because he played himself a piece of shit. And he stirs up the controversy between Michael B. Uh, Adonis Creed and Damien. And right then and there, they make an agreement to fight each other as Damien calls in and calls Adonis Creed a bitch, a pussy, the whole nine, be a man. And then we have the fight. And. I hate the fact that they used the DAZN uh, announcing crew to do this fight, but at least the scriptwriters got it right when they wrote just how horrible Chris Mannix is. A line that Chris Mannix would definitely say in real life because that dude's a piece of shit, doesn't know shit about boxing. And here he is in the second round talking about, oh, Adonis. He show he's got a lot to, to overcome being rust be, being rust and, and, and past his prime. He, he's fighting a guy who's had one pro fight. Shut the fuck up, Chris Mannix. But that was great. That was great because it showed just how, to, how much of a clown he is, both in real life and on screen. The eleventh round and the twelfth round. The eleventh round. They showed no crowd. It's just dumb too. And like Ali said in his fight against Frazier, the fight was so was so. The fight with Frazier was such a life and death struggle that he felt it was only him and Frazier. He didn't feel anybody else in the ring. Not even the referee. Not the corner. Not the the crowd. He didn't hear anything. You've got Adonis and Damien fighting each other and not hearing anything. And then finally. The twelfth and final round reminded me of Norton versus Holmes, where early in the round Norton hurt Holmes, and then late in the round Holmes hurt Norton. Well, in the twelfth round, early in the round, Damien drops Creed. Adonis gets up, he knocks out Damien late in the fight to regain the heavyweight championship of the world. The movie has a beautiful conclusion. Adonis goes into Damien's uh, dressing room and they make amends and they shake hands and they show a sign of respect. And it reminded me, again, it takes me back to the thriller Manila. Before Ali and Frazier go to the hospital, Ali goes to Frazier's dressing room. Frazier's unable to speak. Ali can barely speak. Ali tells Marvis, Joe Frazier's son, that Joe Frazier was the greatest fighter that ever lived. That night, he fought. His, he should be proud of his father because he's the greatest of all time. 
a show of respect between two great fighters. Amazing movie, must must see movie if you haven't seen it already. Even if you heard this and, and spoiled by it, you have to you have to see it. Jonathan Majors is on a great streak right now on one great movie after another. Um, if you've never seen The Last Black Man in San Francisco, go ahead and see that. The first movie I, I saw him in, uh, he was phenomenal in that movie with the great Danny Glover. And the uh, the brother that plays Magic Johnson, and, and um, rest in peace to Magic Johnson's father. The man who plays Magic Johnson's father in Winning Time on HBO was also phenomenal in the black the last black man in San Francisco. I would highly recommend that movie for anybody that's a fan of Jonathan Majors. And just want to see great 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 cinema. Um Michael B. Jordan continues his phenomenal run since Fruitvale Station of the in the last ten years. And um Michael B. Jordan let me make sure I get this right. Is about to film a movie with Will Smith the I Am Legend sequel. Um, looking forward to that. Michael B. Jordan directed Creed, Creed 3 and one of the greatest directorial debuts I've ever seen of a major film by a by an actor. Kudos to Michael B. Jordan. Kudos to Jonathan Majors. Kudos to the Rocky franchise. Kudos to the Creed franchise. Ladies and gentlemen, Go watch that movie. I was thoroughly entertained. I was taken aback by the great script writing, by the great directing, by the greatest boxing scenes I've ever seen in my entire lifetime of watching boxing movies. Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, everyone, everybody in the audience listening, be blessed and be a blessing. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.